Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Today on CityCast Madison. It's the Friday News Roundup. This week I'm joined by CityCast Madison's Bianca Martin and Molly Stentz. When it comes to state aid, everybody hates Madison. How will UW admissions change after the U.S. Supreme Court decision on affirmative action? And a better brand of third-party delivery apps makes a Butterburger better. It's Friday, August 11th. I'm Dylan Brogan, and here's what Madison's talking about. Roundup time. Come on, grab your friends. We're talking news that's fit to post with Molly the Sheriff and Bianca the Host. The headlines never end. It's the Great Friday Roundup. Bianca, good morning. How are you? Good. Even better after that. Yeah, adventure time. Molly, how are you? Hey, hey, hey. Hello, hello. Well, let's get into it. There was this article in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel by Hope Carnop, and it had an attention-grabbing headline. So here it is. What will Popple River, Wisconsin's second smallest town, do with a 5,000% increase in state funding? Pretty snazzy headline there, isn't it? Uh, so Popple River. Fix a pothole. Just kidding. They'll be doing lots <laughs> of stuff like that. But the population 43, it's in the, the Schwamigan Forest up north. It's a small town. But we heard about the historic increase in state aid that was in the last state budget. There were winners and losers. And it appears uh, Popple River really could have used a big increase. What do you think a town of uh, 43, how much did they get back from the state every year to help out with maintaining local government? Not much. For the last 10 years, 606 bucks. That's it. I was going to say, it depends on how busy that bar is there, man. (laughs) Of course, there's a bar, and the two people who own it are also on the town board. There's 43 people, so it's got to be somebody, I guess. That's only appropriate. In this new budget deal, we heard a lot about how local governments, towns, and villages and cities, they haven't seen an increase in uh, in state aid, yet costs keep going up. Well, they got one this year as part of a, a deal that was struck between Governor Evers and the Republicans in the legislature, and they're... Republicans called it a historic increase in shared revenue. So Popple River certainly got a historic increase. They got 5,000% increase. And so they'll be getting a little over $30,000 now. So uh, instead of just having 600 bucks for a pizza party or something, uh, they will be spending almost all of it to cover EMS services from neighboring Florence County. And yeah, that... Obviously, that's a really good thing for Popple River because they were relying on volunteers before and now they can, you know, have EMS service that's not volunteer based. Their emergency medical services was volunteer based. It's kind of crazy how a lot of the state is completely reliant on volunteers to 
drive ambulances and stuff like that. Most rural parts of the state have volunteer fire departments. What happened to very small towns like Popple River happened all over the state. Uh, they, they got a thousand percent increased, five thousand percent increased. Now, and that does sound like a ton, but a lot of that is just because um, before it was completely based on the size of the city. You know, thinking about, you know, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway, you know, saying we got a raw deal. And she's saying that because of how much money Madison makes. And then when you look at basically per resident, we got less than other people across the state. And so she's not like Popple River, we're mad at you. She's mad at the legislature for their decision on how they they use the surplus and that we were shorted. 100%. And Popple River, uh, a little bit of an anomaly, but they went from getting 14 bucks per person in state aid a year to $729 per person per year. Madison went from 18 to 28. So that's $10 more per resident, and there's 270,000 people here, so that's not nothing. But $28 per resident versus 729, there's a big difference there. Okay, you know, maybe this is spicy, but I maybe they needed to be privileged. <laughs> I think maybe we should have gotten more, but people from across Wisconsin come to Madison, hello, and continue to contribute to what makes Madison. I just feel like the funding is so desperately needed in, in more rural areas and thinking about them as connected that we're all that we're all in this together is is also something to consider. I think we gotta get out of that whole mindset where it's either Madison or rural communities. I think you could have helped out both. You know, I guess that's something that I really think we need to be talking about more is like how do how does the city of Madison convince other local towns that we're not draining resources from them? We obviously have the university and state government here, but it's not like uh, hurting Madison helps small communities or hurting small communities helps Madison. And I guess I brought this up as just an example of how this is how our politics are playing out. Small towns clearly needed a lot more money in state aid that had been flat for so many years. But the mayor wasn't wrong when she said uh, it's been flat for Madison that whole time, too. And we kind of got left out of this historic increase. And I'm not sure that's good for the rest of the state either. We got to get out of the mindset of what hurts Madison is good for everybody else and vice versa. That's my takeaway. You're like, don't hurt Madison. Yeah, well, someone's got to stick up. We're always the punching bag. I'm not sure we deserve it. Yeah. Well, before we dive into any more news, let's just take a quick break and hear what Bianca has planned for the weekend. Hey, it's move-in week in Madison, that magical time of the year, August 15th, just days away. Hippie Christmas is upon us. UW-Madison students are coming back to town soon. And I've just been wondering what that big Supreme Court decision is going to mean for our flagship state school. Which one? Yeah, right? Good point. I mean, there were several biggies this summer, including that whole roller coaster ride around student loans. But, you know, I was actually thinking of affirmative action, like what our state school, what our flagship research university here in Madison looks like and who it serves. You can really think of campus as its own city, as a, a sister city, a parallel universe to Madison. It's got its own economy, its own government. Horse cops. <laughs> yes. You know, who it serves matters. We got this decision over the summer 
from the U.S. Supreme Court saying that, you know, affirmative action is largely going to end, that it cannot be used as a major determinative factor in admissions. There cannot be quota systems. Basically, schools have to have to rethink how they're doing it. So we have been trying to understand what that's going to mean for the UW system and what it's going to mean for Madison. But, you know, I don't think they know yet. So on Monday, we spoke to political science professor Howard Schweber. We were talking about the Wisconsin Supreme Court. You know, that was on Monday. Go back and listen if you haven't. Check that one out. But we just could not resist asking him about affirmative action and what he sees might happen at UW. Here's what he said. So what can you tell us about this and what do you think uh, will change with the admission policy in the aftermath of this Supreme Court case? So the the opinion is, of course, the Harvard and North Carolina case, SFFA versus trustees of Harvard. And and Robert's opinion is a classic of its kind. It begins with a sweeping declaration, just in majestic terms. It's never acceptable to consider race and admissions. And then on page 39, there's a gigantic loophole. Uh, And the gigantic loophole says, well, nothing we're saying here should imply that you can't consider race as part of an individual's life experiences. There's an intellectual dishonesty. We're, we're trying to walk between two, two poles. On the one hand, we're claiming we can't consider race. On the other hand, we recognize that particularly for members of racial minorities, their racial identity is a formative part of their life experience. How do you balance those two things? And effectively what the opinion does is it says admissions departments can't have fixed policies considering race, but they can push the burden down to students to put it in their essay, and then admissions departments can give weight to those essays. The problem is the prospective applicants we most want to reach, the ones who are from poor districts, who don't have college counselors or paid college advisors or tutors, whose parents may not be savvy about navigating the college admissions process, which is befuddling even to experts, might not understand that code. And so minority kids from private schools or from good public schools that have college counselors and college counseling staff who know what they're doing, well, whose parents hire consultants or just are savvy about these things, will get the signal. And it's been talked about in the press. We'll get the signal. And that's how you can bring that to bear. Admissions departments are then permitted to treat that as important as part of the personal narrative, which leaves, and this is, again, a classic example uh, of, of an opinion of this kind, all the difficult questions unanswered. How much is too much weight? I am certain there will be lawsuits by people who will be who will claim, you know, that there is a, a, a secret racial preference going on, and they will try to show this by showing that holding all things equal, admissions essays that mention race better results than those. I'm sure there will be lawsuits of this type because the opinion is written to invite lawsuits of this type. I think it's deliberately ambiguous on that point. So that was the now newly retired UW-Madison political science professor, Howard Schweber. So UW hasn't said exactly how they will change their admission practices yet, but it's an interesting point. You can still give weight to life experiences and personal essays, but will everyone... That seems like a very like a, an effective workaround. We know that Wisconsin is near the bottom of major public research institutions as far as the racial diversity of their students. You know, as far as gender diversity, it's roughly equal, though that varies by college, right? There's a lot more women currently enrolled in nursing than engineering, for example. But on the whole, it's roughly on track with with the population. But racially, it's not in some ways. So 
what's this going to mean? Didn't you find it a little bit reassuring, though, that it did seem very dramatic what the U.S. Supreme Court did? But they left wiggle room for this workaround. Well, another interesting point is that, you know, UW does this climate survey, right, where they survey their students. And the majority of students, I think it's like almost four out of five, say that diversity on campus is important to them. It is a benefit. It is a value. They see and benefit from a diverse student campus. Totally. The legal justification that's you know been around for 40 years is that it's actually important for students of all races, all nationalities, all backgrounds to have a diverse um, student body. I just can never forget the moment on campus when I found out that there was a black student who was photoshopped into uh, UW admissions material, like onto a cover at a Badgers game, and they put a black student onto the cover and the black student saw it was like I was never at a game and like that shows you that the universities do want to demonstrate that they are diverse because they know that there's value but also yeah there's some issues <laughs> there I don't mean to laugh but I mean it was just like it's so absurd yeah notorious and it's worth pointing out that you know experiences aren't equal when you look at the demographics of the state and you compare that to the demographics of enrollment for this flagship state school, there are some disparities, and most notably in the African-American population of the state. They are underrepresented. That is borne out by the data. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. (laughs) The biggest thing that jumped out at me from the case was Justice Sotomayor's saying, you know, people have just forgotten the reason behind the Equal Rights Protection Clause (laughs) and the legacy of Brown v. Board. Like, what's the point of affirmative action? So we're still hoping at some point that to speak with the chancellor, speak with University Madison or, or, or Systems Admissions to further understand what happens next. In the meantime, one thing that probably won't change on the Madison campus is a thing that I think is dearly beloved by all, and that's those food delivery robots. (laughs) I hate those. (laughs) You hate them? I hate them. (laughs) Oh, my God. Here I thought I found common ground. I thought I found common ground. They're very kickable. You hate them? I wouldn't advocate any robot violence. Yeah, my instinct is, why are you standing next to me? (laughs) They're very kickable. I've never kicked them. I would never kick them. You guys. Well, you know, uh, food delivery stirs up a lot of feelings, yo. I mean, I hear the state lawmakers are talking about changes to food delivery. Uh, Wisconsin's Pride and Joy Culver's is backing a state bill that was introduced earlier this year that would regulate third-party food delivery apps. They are fed up with food delivery folks coming to Culver's. They never have given permission for food delivery. Whoa, whoa, hold on. How can they, how do they not have any coordination with the restaurant? I don't get how that works. Well, I think that this is like kind of a wild landscape because food delivery apps really exploded after, like during the pandemic and like the, they were a huge resource for a lot of restaurants to get their food to places. I think what happens is, right, is like they have this data scraping on their websites and they slurp up the menus of restaurants around town and put it on their website, make it available, say, hey, you can order from all of these places, right? And then customers, you're looking at the app and you're like, okay, cool, I want to get some Culver's. And then they put in this order and this third party who's not an employee 
of Culver's or whatever restaurant shows up and there's often miscommunication. Well, well, like and then goes through the drive through. No, they walk in, dude. And by the way, for what it's worth, I've actually never seen Culver's on one of my delivery apps. If I had seen it, it would have been sent to my house. Uh, <laughs> but apparently it is happening where some of these third party apps are including Culver's without their permission and they're getting menu items wrong and all sort of things. But someone orders it and then the delivery person goes into Culver's and is like to try to pick it up. And then it causes headaches and confusion. It's obviously happening. Otherwise... They would not be out here um, this Tuesday at the hearing for this bill um, advocating and sharing their grievances. I feel like you could sit at almost any restaurant on Willie Street and like be waiting for table service and just see the like wave of delivery drivers, you know, like running in, trying to pick up an order, there being confusion. Oh, maybe the order isn't ready yet, although they thought it was and then they got to wait or maybe that there's not enough wait staff or host and then they're running down the delivery orders and the people in the restaurant are like what yeah it was it's definitely become a part of our foodscape and um culver's and some others are not very happy about it but there are plenty who are still you know working just fine with these third-party apps but culver's wants it to be under their control which i think makes sense i think it's fair the vice president and lawyer steve anderson for culver's franchise said on tuesday it's like we have no relationship with the company so they have no control what they're doing with their food imagine a delivery driver is doing a bunch of different things like has whatever your cheeseburger and it just like gets cold in their car you know because it takes them too long to get there because they're also running to a bunch of different apps and doing a bunch of different things and it's like you your experience as the consumer is like ah my food's cold that sucks and so of course who are you mad at you're mad at the restaurant so why doesn't the restaurant just like say no doordash no however we're not gonna accept orders from you yeah, so apparently there's really not an easy way for restaurants to do that. And that's part of this legislation, actually. the They would be required um, to make a publicly accessible and more convenient ways for re- restaurants to remove themselves from the platform because there are just no rules. What would this legislation do that they're talking about at the state capitol? Like, how would it help? One of the main things is making, like, they that these companies have to have an easy way for restaurants to remove themselves. So that's not currently there. So that's a big headache. And another thing is requiring the drivers to have some basic food safety knowledge and provide the restaurant with information on things like order times, contents. There are just going to be more expectations, I guess, for the drivers. Bianca Martin, thank you for being here today and telling us all about uh, the Culver's drama. Bet. Molly Stentz. Uh, another good one, and we had a good week, so we'll we'll do it all again n- next week, okay? Showing up. That's all for today here on CityCast Madison. Bianca Martin is your host. We're produced by Molly Stentz, Elizabeth Kama, and me, Dylan Brogan. Our theme music is by Carl Christensen. You can also get more news delivered right to your inbox by subscribing to Madison Minutes. And if you enjoyed today's show, why not share this podcast with someone who's got nothing against a big town, even if they were born in Mellon or Camp Douglas. See you back here Monday morning with more news from around the city. Until then, 